Hello everyone, my name is Mohammed Jamal. I'm a surgical resident in the Kuwaiti Board of General Surgery, and I will be your host for today's session. Uh, I would like to thank uh, you all for your interest and participation with us in this uh, surgical review course. Uh, now, with all pleasure, I would like to welcome our guest speaker for today's uh, session, Dr. Mohammed Jamal. Uh, Dr. Mohammed gave us last Sunday uh, a session about uh, gastric diseases. And um, for those who weren't present uh, last time, allow me to introduce Dr. Mohammed once again. Uh, Dr. Mohammed is a consultant surgeon at Jabal Ahmed Hospital. He's a professor at Kuwaiti University. He completed the American and Canadian Board of Surgery, uh, followed by a hepatobiliary surgery fellowship in McGill University and bariatric fellowship in Cleveland Clinic. Uh, he is the chairman of transplantation department in the Kuwaiti University and head of liver and pancreatic surgical unit at Java Hospital. He's also our program director of the Surgical Foundation course. Dr. Mohammed is an active researcher with many publications and is a regular participant and speaker in multiple conferences around the world. I personally feel proud today to, uh, to share a name such as Dr. Mohammed Jamal, because Dr. Mohammed is such a role model and a mentor for a lot of doctors, and especially the next generation of surgeon. Uh, welcome with us again, Dr. Mohammed, and uh, Thank you, Mohammed Jamal, uh, for the flattering, flattering introduction, and uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, SurgeQ is a great initiative, and uh, I thank the Kuwait Association of Surgeons for organizing such a great uh, review course. Um, today, I'm going, it will be a shorter presentation than the previous presentation on the malignant and uh, benign uh, gastric diseases. And in our talk today, we are going to talk, uh, focus on malignant uh, uh, small bowel uh, tumors. So, <clears throat> so basically at the beginning, I want to simplify the concepts of surgical oncology in general. And after I simplify those concepts, we are going to talk about small bowel tumors, starting with adenocarcinoma, followed by carcinoids, cysts, and lymphoma. So this is uh, the um, uh, Saudi Cancer Society logo. And in Arabic there, there is, this is basically a tweet making fun of the Saudi, Saudi Cancer Society saying that, you know, you should not put the, the, the animal or the crab as the sign of cancer. Yes, it is, uh, yes, cancer shares the name with the animal crab, but it's not the same. Uh, now, many people might think that this is true and it's not uh, correct to put the uh, animal uh, as the sign of uh, a cancer society but but actually this shows a deep understanding of the history of oncology the physician galen made the first description of cancer and uh, he did that by cutting or slicing through a tumor of the breast and he saw that the tumor itself is originating from a focus and from that focus you find arms or angiogenesis um, arising from the focus to occupy the whole breast so he thought that the cancer 
is resembling the animal, uh, the crab, in the in its arm that is spreading through the uh, organ. So actually, this shows a deep understanding of the history. And the oldest description of cancer was discovered in Egypt. It dates back to about 3000 BC. It is found in a papyrus called the Edwin Smith Papyrus, and it's a, a copy of an ancient Egyptian textbook on trauma surgery. They describe eight cases of tumors or ulcers of the breast uh, that they were removed by cauterization and with a tool called the fire drill. The writing says uh, about the disease that there is no treatment for cancer. So for those people who think uh, or believe in conspiracy th theory and uh, say that cancer is a, a new invention, it is not, uh, we, we, it is not a new invention. Uh, it is uh, discovered since uh, ancient times. Now, basic concepts of oncology. Cancer is the seed, the body is the soil. When you decide to treat cancer, you have to focus on the seed and on the soil. The seed itself, or the primary focus of the tumor, let's say a two centimeter breast cancer, that's the seed. To treat the seed, you need to do either surgery or radiation. Surgery carries the advantage of having an actual pathology and making sure that all the margins are removed and it's in general associated with better survival than the radiation. With the radiation, you cannot get an actual pathological assessment of the cancer itself. In terms of the soil, the treatment, which is the whole body, the treatment is with chemotherapy. So usually combined with combining the treatment of the seed with the treatment of the soil. You do surgery, resect the tumor, and then you give chemotherapy, either before doing the surgery or after doing the surgery. Now, how do you know that the cancer is actually reaching the soil? There are no accurate tests to do that. We do CT scans, we do PET scans, but CT scans and PET scans don't look at the actual cells that are circulating in the lymph or in the circulatory system. But you can predict and you can, uh, you can predict whether the cancer is reaching the soil or, or reaching through the body by the following, aggressive features and pathology. So that's why you need to do surgery. Take the tumor out and understand this pathology. Sometimes you'll find aggressive features and pathology that will require you to do or to give chemotherapy. Then you look at lymph node metastasis and you look at organ metastasis. Of course, reaching or if the tumor is reaching other uh, organs, this is a sign of aggressiveness and you basically need to do to be more aggressive with that tumor or if the tumor is reaching the lymph nodes. So whenever you are learning about the tumor, you need to, you need to answer these questions. You need to know the answer of these questions. How does the tumor present? How can you detect it? Where does it go? Sometimes the tumor does not occupy lymph nodes. Um, <clears throat> it can metastasize directly to other organs by hematogenous spread instead, instead of lymphatic spread. From where is the tumor actually arising? 
how can we do local treatment for the tumor? What kind of surgery? Is there any systemic treatment available for it? What, what are the chemotherapeutic options available? Some tumors don't have, we don't have some good chemotherapy for, for some tumors. What is the survival after treatment? And how do you survey the patient after you treat the cancer cell? Now, in terms of the small, small bowel tumors, I need just to move this. Um, although the small bowel is a large organ, tumors of the small bowel, for some reason, constitute only 1% to 2% of all malignant tumors of the GI tract. Adenocarcinomas, this is a, 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 a common MCQ question that uh, comes up when we were students. Adenocarcinomas are commoner in the proximal small bowel but other malignant region, legion, lesions are more common in the distal intestine. The commonest malignant neoplasms of the small bowel are adenocarcinoma followed by uh, carcinoid tumors, malignant gists and lymphomas. In terms of the presentation of small bowel tumors, uh, symptoms may include dyspepsia, anorexia, malaise, and dull abdominal pain. Weight loss, obstruction. The lumen of the small bowel is not very large. So if you have a tumor in the lumen itself, obstruction can occur at a very early stage. Bleeding, if the tumor is vascular, such as just tumors. Weight loss, we mentioned that. Anemia and intussusception. Perforation also can happen, especially in uh, carcinoid and uh, small bowel lymphoma or any other tumors. How do you diagnose it? Well, we know that the endoscope cannot reach, it can reach the small bowel, but it's difficult to do a routine endoscopy for the uh, whole small bowel. So we use CT scan, CT scan enterocolysis, small bowel follow-through, upper GI endoscopy, if the tumor is in the proximal small bowel. If it's within the first 100 centimeters of the small bowel, you can do push enteroscopy, and you can also do capsule endoscopy. It's one of the relatively new therapy, uh, uh, investigative uh, um, uh, approaches. This is a picture of uh, proximal uh, adenocarcinoma of the uh, small bowel. You can see in the middle, this is the pylorus. This is proximal to the pylorus, and this is the tumor itself. In terms of the treatment of adenocarcinoma of the small bowel, we know that adenocarcinoma goes to the lymph nodes. Therefore, you need to do an adequate lymph node dissection. So if the tumor is here in the small bowel, you need to get the mesentery and the fat around the mesentery, and you need to go high in the vessel to get as much lymph nodes as possible. So you will do a resection of the small bowel along with the mesentery with the high ligation to get as much lymph nodes as possible. And uh, the chemotherapeutic options of course, you need to discuss the patient at the tumor board. And after surgery, you need to discuss the um, chemotherapeutic options uh, at the tumor board. Uh, usually, you will use similar uh, chemotherapy to the chemotherapy uh, utilized in uh, colorectal cancers. In terms of uh, next, I'm going to talk about carcinoid tumors of the small bowel and uh, stomach. Um, <clears throat> carcinoid tumors of the small bowel arise from the enterochromuffin cells. 
they um, can be derived from the foregut, uh, respiratory system, the thymus, midgut, stomach, small bowel, right colon, appendix even, and hindgut, uh, distal colon and rectum. So they can arise from almost anywhere in the GI tract. Their presentation includes abdominal pain, it is uh, um, also commonly associated with partial or complete small uh, uh, bowel obstruction. It causes a severe dysmoplastic reaction, the tumor itself, that will cause uh, uh, obstruction early on uh, in the uh, tumor. Or it can present as a carcinoid syndrome. What is a carcinoid syndrome? Now, this is a, a picture of an intussusception. Now, what is a carcinoid syndrome? Car the syndrome is most commonly associated with carcinoid tumor of the GI tract, particularly from the small bowel. The classic description of carcinoid syndrome typically includes vasomotor, cardiac, and GI manifestation. Most patients, so in order to get a carcinoid syndrome, you need to have a massive hepatic replacement by metastatic disease. So if the tumor is from the small bowel, from the midgut, you need the tumor to be metastasizing to the liver in order to get malignant carcinoid syndrome. So it cannot happen in midgut tumors without uh, liver metastasis. Now, the common symptoms and signs include flushing. So in 80% of patients, they will complain of flushing diarrhea, hepatomegaly, cardiac lesions, most commonly right heart valvular disease, so a tricuspid valve pathology, and asthma. They, they, the, 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 the syndrome itself does not come together. It's, it, it can be, it doesn't present in a very classic way. Sometimes the patient will complain of severe asthma or uh, patients coming with tricuspid valve lesions or patients just complaining of flushing or feeling hot most of the time. So you need to have a high index of suspicion in order to uh, make uh, a proper diagnosis and find uh, or, or detect a malignant carcinoid syndrome. What investigations would you do if you think that the patient is having uh, a carcinoid syndrome? So carcinoid tumors produce serotonin. Serotonin is metabolized, metabolized in the liver and the lungs to fight HIAA. What you need to do is you need to do a 24 hours urine collection to measure the level of 5-HIAA. That's how you make a diagnosis. You can also do chromogranin A, do a CT scan, and you can also do a somatostatin receptor scintigraphy. Now, this is a quote from Steve Jobs. Remembering that I will be dead soon is the most important tool I have ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. In life, Why did I put his picture? Because he was diagnosed with uh, carcinoid disease. How do you classify neuroendocrine tumors of the GI tract? Carcinoid is a neuroendocrine tumor of the GI tract. You, uh, there is WHO classification and you classify the patient according to the grade, the mitotic count, and the KI67 percentage. Well-differentiated neuroendocrine tumor will uh, behave in a, uh, will have a benign behavior. Um, some of them will have, um, you can divide them into well-differentiated with uncertain behavior and poorly differentiated neuroendocrine tumor with high 
grade malignant behavior based on this classification. How do you treat uh, carcinoma tumors? You treat them the same way you treat adenocarcinoma of the small bowel. You need to do a resection with lymphadenectomy because the tumor will metastasize first to the lymph nodes. Um, if the tumor is in the appendix, I'm going to put a slide on um, carcinoma tumors of the appendix. Uh, and in patients with carcinoma tumors with, and widespread metastatic disease, those, those with carcinoid syndrome, uh, you, you treat them symptomatically with a somatostatin analog uh, such as uh, octreotide. Now, in terms of appendiceal neuroendocrine tumor, it's important to know about them. It's, they are rare, but sometimes you, may, you might go in as a surgeon, uh, perform an appendectomy, and uh, the patient comes with classical symptoms of appendicitis. You do the appendectomy, and uh, the pathologist calls you five uh, or seven days later and tells you that, look, this is not an acute appendicitis. This is a carcinoid of the appendix. The majority of these tumors are benign. Carcinoid syndrome in those tumors is rare, but you need to know the size of the tumor. If it's in the appendix and it's only less than one centimeter, you only do an appendectomy. If the size is two centimeters and above, you need to go back and do a right hemicolectomy because you need to get the lymph nodes. Size of two centimeters in the appendix and above uh, uh, can mean that uh, it is, it's an aggressive uh, tumor and it might go to the lymph nodes. So you need to know the status of the lymph nodes. Or if the tumor is about, is above one centimeter and very close to the appendiceal artery, you might need to go back. Of course, discuss it at your tumor board. That's the safest answer in your board's exam. Gastric neuroendocrine tumor, there is, uh, it's a relatively new diagnosis still. Uh, the guidelines are not very clear in terms of the treatment of gastric neuroendocrine tumors. They are very rare, but basically you need to know that they are classified into three types. Type one is associated with chronic atrophic gastritis, usually with uh, chronic proton pump inhibitor uh, therapy. It can be associated with pernicious anemia as well. They are usually, uh, they will usually have a benign behavior and you don't need to do much for them except if you have uh, a mass uh, associated uh, with it. Type two is uh, usually associated with Zollinger-Ellison syndrome and Menwin syndrome with hypergastrinemia. So you need to work patients up, uh, rule out uh, Menwin syndrome and rule out uh, gastrin-producing uh, tumors. Type three tumors are large, solitary, invasive, uh, and they are usually, and they are malignant. They can also be associated with an atypical a form of uh, carcinoid syndrome. So type one is usually benign, type two and three uh, uh, malignant. Type two associated with gastrin producing tumors, type three is, is malignant and aggressive. That's a summary of uh, gastrin neuroendocrine tumors. Going to uh, small bowel lymphoma. Um, malignant small bowel lymphoma involves the uh, small bowel primarily. It, it can also be a manifestation of systematic disease, systemic disease. The small intestine is the second most common site of primary GI lymphoma. The stomach is the most common site. 
lymphomas are most commonly found in the ileum because the greatest presence of uh, gut-associated lymphoid tissue is in the ileum. There is an increased risk for developing primary small bowel lymphoma in patients with celiac disease and AIDS. The symptoms of lymphoma can include pain, weight loss, nausea, vomiting, and change in bowel habits. Perforation can be as high as in 25% of patients. The most common histologic type of primary small bowel lymphoma is diffuse large B cells. The five-year survival ranges from 20 to 30%. The initial treatment of small bowel lymphoma is not with, with surgery, it's with chemotherapy. And surgery is reserved for intra-abdominal complications such as obstruction and perforation. You need also to watch patients after the initiation of chemotherapy. You need to watch for perforation in those uh, patients. Now, I'm going to end uh, my lecture uh, talking about GIST. Take some water. So, <clears throat> GIST tumors originate from the interstitial, uh, from the intestinal pacemaker cells, in, from the interstitial cells of Cajal, which expresses CD117. What is CD117? It's a transmembrane tyrosine kinase receptor, and it's a product of the CKIT proto-oncogen. They can occur from, uh, uh, in the GI tract from, from the esophagus to the anus, but the most common, it is the most common mesenchymal tumor of the GI tract. 60% are located in the stomach and 30% in the small bowel. And overall, they constitute about 3% of all gastric uh, malignancies. Um, you can distinguish them from other mesenchymal uh, tumors through immunohistochemistry, looking uh, for the CD117, uh, PDG uh, FRA, and the CD34. They arise from the submucosa. These are the layers of the stomach and um, just are submucosal tumors. So you might uh, get a report from uh, an endoscopic ultrasound or from a an endoscopy saying that there is a this this patient is presenting with a tumor from the submucosa. The key is submucosal tumors. Just are submucosal tumors. Are they malignant or benign? Well, just behavior occupies a wide spectrum from benign to malignant behavior. But you should consider all gists as potentially malignant. The guidelines for classifying just as, so from the get-go, from the beginning, from the presentation of the patient, it's hard to tell if this gist is benign or malignant. You need to take it out in order to know the behavior of that tumor, but you should consider all gists as potentially malignant. How could you predict the behavior of a gist tumor after resection? You need to look at the size, if it's greater than five to 10 centimeter, and if uh, the site, and uh, the number of mitosis, so more than five mitosis for 50 high power fields. And now, now it is acceptable that with long follow-up, virtually all gists have the potential for malignant behavior. Even those, even small gists, two centimeters or less, even those with 
with favorable histologic features with more follow-up, you will, uh, uh, they can uh, act in a malignant way. The most common indication for surgery includes bleeding and obstruction. They are very vascular tumors. And in the small bowel, they can cause, they can cause obstruction early or in the GE junction. Typically, just invades locally and they spread by uh, direct extension to adjacent tissues and hematogenously to the liver, lungs and bones. They don't, they very rare, it's very rare that just tumors metastasize to the lymph nodes. So you do not need to do a lymphadenectomy when you resect a just tumor. You just need to do uh, an R0 resection of the tumor itself. In terms of the diagnostic workup, endoscopy is important. EUS is important along with a, a fine needle aspiration and CT scan. In terms of the biopsy, the tumor is, is fragile. You don't want to rupture it because rupture will, uh, uh, makes the, will make the survival worse. Um, so uh, you need to be careful taking the biopsy. It's a vascular tumor, it can bleed. Uh, so it's important, it's, it's better to do an endoscopic biopsy using uh, under uh, uh, endoscopic ultrasound uh, guidance. Biopsy is essential if you want to do a neoadjuvant uh, therapy uh, of the tumor. Now, how do you stage it? Uh, again, the most important factors in red here, uh, you need to know the mitotic rate, the tumor size, and the tumor location. So with more proximal tumor, you will have a more favorable diagnosis. So tumors in the stomach will have a more favorable uh, uh, um, uh, prognosis than tumors distal to the uh, stomach. What about the principles of surgery? I uh, uh, mentioned before that the goal of surgery is margin negative resection uh, in block re with in block resection of adjacent organs if they are involved. You should avoid rupture of the tumor because rupture of these tumors will spread it. Lymph node metastases again are very rare. Again, I'm emphasizing you don't need to do lymphadenectomy for just tumors. Um, the recurrence is related to the mitotic rate uh, and the presence of uh, deletion can be also related to the presence uh, of deletion or insertion of CKIT exon 11 and also male sex. In terms of adjuvant therapy, um, until recently, I would say about 15, 20 years ago, there are no adjuvant chemotherapy for GISTs. Uh, radiation therapy has not been proved to be effective in the management of uh, GISTs, and they used not to respond to uh, chemotherapy. However, this changed with the metanib, Gleevec. Um, competitive inhibitor of, uh, it's a competitive inhibitor of certain tyrosine kinases, including the kinases associated with the transmembrane receptor kit and platelet-derived growth factor receptors. The initial studies showed very encouraging results with 54% of patients showing at least partial response. This is one of the major studies uh, on imatinib. They included completely resected primary gist, more than three centimeter and CKIT positive. Um, they gave a one year of adjuvant imatinib 400 milligram daily uh, but they randomized uh, patients to 400 milligram of daily imatinib versus placebo. And the end, primary endpoint was recurrence-free uh, survival. The trial was stopped early when the planned 
uh, interim analysis disclosed that, disclosed that significantly fewer patients in the treated group had uh, recurrence. And since then, imatinib uh, is approved as an adjuvant therapy uh, for patients after the resection of um, uh, just if the tumor is more than three centimeter uh, in size. Now, in certain situations, such as an exon 9 kit mutation, you need to give a double dose of imatinib. About, uh, you need to give 800 milligram of imatinib. Some studies also, and in some centers, they can give it up to uh, three years. In patients with uh, platelet-derived growth uh, factor receptors, AD842, uh, um, um, you cannot treat the patients with uh, imatinib because uh, these patients will not uh, uh, be sensitive to the treatment. Uh, this is a large gist tumor uh, that uh, we resected a long time ago. It's huge, as you can see. Um, in particular situations, you try to give imatinib prior to surgery to shrink the tumor. If the surgery will be very major, such as uh, a gist of the GE junction that uh, might require a total gastrectomy, you can give imatinib shrink the tumor, and then you can do a local resection, saving the stomach, or just of the rectum where uh, the resection might require an APR. You can give the imatinib in a new adjuvant fashion to shrink the tumor and do just a uh, local resection. So that concludes uh, my presentation uh, for today on malignant small bowel. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Mohammed, for this informative and wonderful lecture. Uh, if you want to take a few questions from the attendees, uh, and anyone want to ask a question, we have, I think, two questions in the Q&A panel, uh, if you want to read them. So, um, as a GP at primary healthcare centers, what are the red flags of suspect patients with small intestinal tumor uh, and refer them urgently? I think Again, small intestinal tumors are very rare, but um, weight loss. Weight loss is a, a very important sign. Um, if the patient's losing more than 5 to 10% of their total body weight without uh, dieting intentionally. Now, when a patient tells you that he lost 10 kilograms because he's dieting, you need to be careful. You need to ask carefully about the diet history. Um, maybe it's not a true diet. Maybe he's, he's not doing something different than what he used to do in the past. So don't take uh, a patient tell, telling you that he's losing weight from diet lightly, especially in patients uh, above uh, 60 years of age. Even if they tell you that they are losing weight because of dieting, you need to be careful and you need to uh, uh, do a proper history and examination uh, um, to avoid missing uh, uh, tumors. So weight loss is is very important uh, sign uh, that you can rely on. The second question from Ziad: How to approach resectable gastric gist by endoscopic biopsy with resectable uh, hepatic meds? Now, uh, again, you you need to discuss this at a tumor board. You can't make a decision um, as a surgeon or an, as an endoscopist 
or as an oncologist without discussing these patients at a tumor board. Um, you can uh, give uh, imatinib and uh, assess the response for the patient, and then you can decide whether you can go for um, a resection or not. Again, these tumors uh, tend to cause obstruction and bleeding. So even if they are metastatic, sometimes you might need to go in and, and resect them. So yeah, um, uh, central umbilication and ulceration in the diagnosis of GIST, can it be enough given the high risk of biopsy? No, it can't be enough. I think uh, if you have endoscopic ultrasound in your facility, you should go for a biopsy, a fine needle aspiration at least. And uh, um, if you go through the endoscopic route, uh, by a good uh, endoscopist, uh, you will reduce the risk of rupture and it can tell you, it can give you information. Now, if the tumor is small, bleeding, symptomatic in the small bowel, you, you might not need to do a biopsy. You are going to go in and do uh, a resection. But if the biopsy is going to change your management, if the biopsy is going to tell you that this is just a not adenocarcinoma, then it will change your surgery. Because again, in adenocarcinoma, you need to do a lymphadenectomy, but in GIST, you don't need to do a lymphadenectomy. So uh, uh, you need the biopsy. If the GIST is at the GE junction or in the stomach, you just need to remove the GIST itself. You don't need to do an actual resection with um, five or six centimeter above, five and six centimeter below. So you need to know what kind of tumor it is by a biopsy. But if the biopsy is not going to change your management, then yes. If the patient is bleeding actively, is having an obstruction, you need to go in and deal with it. Right. Um, there are some questions about uh, studying. Uh, I'm going to focus on the uh, questions on uh, GIST. If you resect a GIST and the tumor margin is positive, should you proceed with total gastrectomy or treat with imatinib? It depends on the site of the tumor. If it's not near the G-junction, you might not need to go back. Again, these Omar, this, these type of questions are better suited for a tumor board, and the tumor board should decide on what to do in these uh, cases. Again, if the uh, margin is positive, then you probably should have given imatinib before uh, because usually it's hard to get a, a positive margin if the tumor is not in a in a in in a sensitive uh, location. Is colonoscopy a part of workup, especially if you find that appendicitis carcinoma? Yes, you might uh, do a colonoscopy. An important point here is that in patients with just they will have it, an increased risk of having other tumors. So you might need to do an upper and lower endoscopy in any patient with just as well. Um, I think I answered that before. Better, ah, better ask with regard to just when FNA versus biopsy. Again, I, 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 I mentioned before that if you need to give new adjuvant therapy, then you need to do a biopsy. Better is a great colorectal uh, surgeon working with us. And uh, you know better than me that if it's um, in the rectum requiring an APR, then you might need to do an FNA. In my specialty, if it's around the junction, then I might do it. Or if I think that the biopsy is going to change my management. In general, EUS biopsy by an experienced endoscopist should be fine. Uh, you wouldn't uh, have a problem 
uh, with that. I would try to avoid percutaneous biopsy unless it's a must. But usually you don't need to do um, a um, percutaneous biopsy. Most of just 60% of them are in the stomach anyway. So you can reach them with uh, EUS and biopsy. In terms of the mortality of small bowel tumors, it, it, it varies. Um, again, I mentioned that the small bowel lymphoma is about 30%. Uh, adenocarcinoma is around that 30 to 40%. Adenocarcinoma, the ampulla of water uh, is about 50%. And uh, so it varies in the location and the type. Any role of endoscopic resection in just, well, it's a submucosal tumors. You don't want to rupture them because rupture is associated with the recurrence. Uh, so I think you need to be very experienced in doing those. And usually they are not small. So I don't see, um, I'm sure some people can do an endoscopic resection of them, but I don't think it's extremely feasible. Yes, endoscopic resection in T1 adenocarcinoma of the stomach in the experienced hands uh, are feasible. Management of carcinoid syndrome, you can take the tumor, the primary, and do debulking, and also give um, uh, octuretide analogs. All right. Um, I think we are done with the questions. Uh, all right. Thank you, Dr. Mohammed. We know we have a, you have a very busy schedule. Just a few announcements before we end uh, that all the sessions are recorded and are going to be uploaded on our website this week. Uh, the sessions are CME accredited, so you will receive a certificate of attendance as soon as we can, as soon as we can finish it. And the uh, next session will be with uh, Dr. Jad Abu Khalil from uh, Ottawa, from Canada. Uh, he's going to give us a talk about... Uh, uh, the surgical diseases of the pancreas. So stay tuned and thank you, Dr. So, Jamal, again. And we uh, can't wait to have you once more on our Yeah, great. We're, we're residents together with Jad, and uh, Jad is a great uh, speaker. So it will be a great talk. I'm looking forward to it with uh, Jad Bukhalid. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.